Welcome to the Tom Nelson Podcast. My guest today is John Chismadia. I've been in Colorado for um, 30 years, moved here from New Jersey. Um, I was in corporate America for about 10 years before starting my own computer distribution business. And the, uh, the, the fun part of what we're doing right now is kind of a result of having the opportunity to uh, you know, experience a lot of travel and experience many different types of um, uh, situations involving life and family and weather. I will, I will tell you, we're going to be talking about Climate Scam, my book, but I have actually been in an avalanche, okay? And I never blamed it on Climate Scam. Uh, I do have four grandkids. Uh, they're 10, 9, 8, and 7 years old. Um, my daughter lives in Dallas. We are here in Eagle, Colorado, which is just west of Vale. And uh, as you know, it's a wonderful, well, wonderful spot to be skiing, that's for sure. Gets a little chilly in the wintertime, but we've come to accept that, you know? Um, but anyhow, yeah, no, I, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I was, uh, I was involved in, um, I had a political science major and a little bit of econ thrown in there. And I was on the football team and on the track team. And the, um, uh, you know, there are a number of life experiences that go on in the, after you graduate, you still stay in touch with some guys and some guys you don't, but it's been a, it's been a wonderful life experience, but that's what gave me the impetus to start researching the information for climate scam. Um, uh, quick war story on that one. My wife and I were actually down in Phoenix in um, uh, 2014, and there was a front page of the Phoenix Sun with a picture of a golden eagle flying into a windmill. And I had, I had been curiously interested in what was going on with the global warming types of messaging. It was called global warming until, you know, the globe wasn't warming, so we changed it to climate scam. But anyhow, I started, I started doing some digging and doing a lot of... Uh, um, hands-on research, if you will, and accumulated chronologically information and, and articles, uh, uh, everything from even clips of television shows, you know, that kind of thing, interviews and all that, to be able to get a sense of what exactly was happening. But by accumulating that information chronologically, I was able to put together what is now Climate scam, the climate scam of the book. That's that's the hard copy. The hard copy. We are now on, um, uh, e, you know, EPUB. I think you got one on Amazon, actually, as I recall. And um, we're planning the launch of the hardcover and the um, paperback really around the beginning of October. We're uh, having a lot of fun with, you know, different types of information sources. We've got. Um, close to 29,000 people following us on Twitter right now. We started that with a, a grassroots effort. We didn't really do a lot of advertising, but I started taking some information and looking at the two, 250 spaces on Twitter. I've forgotten the, the total number, but you can only get a little bit of information in there. And, you know, working some good editing time, you know, we were able to get that done. Um, but what I wanted to do was, uh, you know, give you a little bit of background on myself. My wife and I have traveled extensively. Um, we've uh, been to wine tastings in Tuscany and in Napa Valley. We've, we've uh, been to Africa on uh, safari. We've been to Alaska on, uh, uh, it's not really a safari up there, but we actually wound up staying in a camp that was right, right along the uh, uh the Gulf of Alaska, actually, and the camp was, uh, let's say, very, very comfortable with the numbers of grizzly bears that would come through on the way to get fish from the, you know, feeding rivers in there. But anyhow, so we've had a lot of good natural experiences. Um, we've had, you know, reasonably good health. We're having uh, some real, actually, a, a lot of fun right now. Um, in a lot of ways, almost getting ready for climate change volume two. Um, this one, I wanted to point this out to you before we kind of move away from it. This this bird, 
with the fish in its mouth is the cover. And I actually took that picture in Costa Rica a few years ago using a high-speed camera. And I noticed that bird literally poised on a, on a log over the river. And just, Tom, it was just a lucky shot because it had high-speed um, uh, triggers. And I just held the trigger down and I pulled the thing out. I said, and then I saw the fish in the mouth. And when I did the book, I said, you know, this is a, this, this is a, a shot that I took and it's really, you know, high quality type of thing. So it also, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, possible interpretations, if you will, of the, the, the fish in the bird's mouth. The bird is called, in, it's an anhinga. And the um, uh, the fun part about that was that I mentioned to you we're um, we've traveled a lot and on our African safari we actually had some pretty close encounters with uh, lions and I think the cover of the next book it might I may even call it uh, to the bears or something but um, so I've have I have a good you know library of pictures that I've taken that are uh, uh, naturalistic in in theme so. That's kind of where we are. Um, I did want to share with you the um, information from our, our press release. And the uh, well, obviously, it announces the, uh, uh, the launching of Climate Scan. And it talks about the fact that it's a historical narrative. And that, that's something that's important because I, I want to get back to that. But one of the things about this book that... I was very um, certain to, to acknowledge and recognize is that this is not a science, this is not a science treatise, okay? Most, most of the time, and, and, and this is not to knock books that are written that way, but many, many times, whether you're reading it or even sitting with people who are on either side of the, uh, you know, the, the climate debate, they wind up arguing scientific facts or scientific um, uh, information pieces. I don't know whether they're facts or not necessarily. I'll let them take that, you know, take that responsibility. But what, what happens is that it's almost like you're watching two, two people or in a conference room, a bunch of people standing on either side of the argument or, or presentation of information, I guess. And um, nothing gets done. Nothing gets resolved. There seems to be a, uh, an exhaustion factor where whether you're reading about one set of data, and there are many sets of data, as you know, out there in the in the published world right now, as well as online. And you can spend all the time you wanted to, whether it be a day, two days a week, or even a couple hours, looking at the science. And you're really not coming away with a whole lot of conclusions, in my opinion. Okay, but what what we've done, and, and, I'll, and I'll read it to you relative to the relative to the science. The science on both sides of the debate is acknowledged, not dissected. The reader can observe the results of misrepresented events and their impact on society. Most importantly, and I mean this very sincerely, you are allowed to make your own decisions on this subject without any prejudice. So, um, the, uh, uh, the, but, but the point about the fact that, you know, we acknowledge the science debate, but we're not dissecting it. Now, as a result of that, what we have here is a historical narrative. And the timing of the um, uh, information that's included in the book has been dictated by what's been released in the press. There's been nothing in the book that isn't in, in, in a variety of different ways presented by the press. And um, pardon me, I want to take a little sip of water here. But the the thing about the historical narratives that always caught my um, attention and got my uh, create my creativity going really was um, experiencing well Stephen Ambrose for example with his works about World War II and you know D-Day and Citizen Soldier and uh, of course uh, the Blue and the Gray by Commander it's a collection of letters home from the soldiers to their you know wives, mothers, whatever. And he was able to take that 
if those authors were able to take that uh, presentation of information and then comment on it. So you're looking at a, a timeline and the timeline is occupied by events. And then you'll see my interpretation of events. The interpretations are mine. They're backed up by um, uh, you know, many, many good names in the business and in the literary business of, of uh, climate and the science business of climate. Um, and the, the exciting part about this is that where the book ultimately leads the reader is through a path that I'm going to break down in, in, um, in terms of the chapters. But what I, what, I, what I was looking to do was give the reader the sense of knowledge that comes with the passage of time in this tracking of it. And um, they're, they're able to see, for example, well, Al, Al Gore, uh, it's a pretty good share of ink in the book, okay? He's, he's uh, uh, very rightly so labeled the, the, the leader of the, of the movement. He wasn't the first guy, obviously, out on the street. But, um, and how that develops and how that gets tied into the, um, I mean, everything from in, in Gore's career after he wound up in second place in the presidential election in 2000. Um, I do mention in the book, by the way, that he actually conceded twice, okay? First time and then he called up and said, ah, I'm not taking that back and then he conceded again. But what I'm driving at is that the, um, the reader gets to kind of follow the activities in whether it's society or whether it's you know their own lives um, as it involves global warming and climate change. So you go, you, you'll, you'll see this go from um, Al Gore and the presentation of what happened with you know his movie Inconvenient Truth into the Nobel Prize. And then how that will lead into climate date. You know, that was the 2009 uh, email hacking in uh, the reference from East Anglia. But the, the way I'm going to explain these four or five, actually, um, groupings of information, um, the first four chapters basically give you a historical context, okay, of what we're dealing with. Uh, the next four chapters basically set up how the climate change movement begin to take form um, and, and begin to execute. Then the next chapters, 9 through 12, uh, I get into a lot of information and a lot of um, detail about government action. Now, when I say government action, I'm talking about the... Um, um, well, the, the, you know, in, in that particular section, we're talking about the Paris uh, uh, Climate Accords, the Marrakesh Express. I did have some fun putting the titles of each chapter in, in order, but um, uh, everything from blacklisting to censorship to uh, even one chapter eight is titled No Sense of Decency. And I'm going to be getting into these things. You'll, you'll see how the presentation of the information is, is factual. I'm not making anything up. This is what actually happened. And, and then, you know, my interpretations and comments about it. Um, we do get into a couple of things that are um, potent and powerful in, in just about every chapter. And it, it's funny how some of the things we'll, we'll be talking about in the book on... Um, relate to some things that are still current and have been recently happening. And I'll, I'll leave that definition kind of where we are right now. But um, one of the things that was apparent as the timeline came together was the fact that if you were on one side or the other of the discussion and the um, arguments, if you will, um, and you were on the wrong side of where the media happened to be, you could be blacklisted. And there were many people who were. 
I put, and remember this is a historical narrative. So in situations where I've used things like blacklisting and the censorship, I talk about as a comparison in, in uh, uh, the chapters, for example, I talk about you know Senator McCarthy down in uh, West Virginia in 1949 telling people that he had the names of uh, 236, as I recall, communists in the United States Congress, okay? <coughs> Pardon me. But um, Adam Schiff, now tying, tying all of this together, Adam Schiff, who was the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, um, after the Intelligence Committee had done a pretty, actually a very thorough investigation of the Russia collusion thing, and Devin Nunes, who was chairman of the committee at the time, um, uh, came out and said, you know, we have, there's no collusion. This is a done deal. This is over. But Schiff actually got on, uh, got into an interview with, I think it was Andrea Mitchell, where he used the same phrase. I have in my briefcase proof of this collusion. Now, the press loved that because Schiff was head of the intelligence committee. And relative to House of Representatives, um, uh, responsibilities and committee assignments and things like that. It doesn't get much more powerful than that committee. Now, there are some that are as powerful, maybe, but um, you know, the intelligence committee is picking up information that's not generally available to the public and typically is used in the presentation of the defense of our country. So this guy's sitting there getting interviewed by the um, uh, by you know, like a let me say a, a news person, an iconic news person. How's that? And he, he quoted McCarthy. I remember watching it on TV. I almost fell off my chair, you know? Anyhow, that's the type of development of the, um, uh, the timeline of the climate scam. And it's called climate scam on purpose. We're, we're, we're talking about um, uh, people being led down or some type of a, a path where there's ultimately there's ultimately an exchange of money. And the climate game, if you will, like the global warming game, uh, produced a lot of money flowing. And you know, there's gold in them, there are hills, is a subchapter title of one of the chapters. And there was no way, there was no way that the people who were involved in the, let's say, the, the management of their activities relative to climate persecution, prosecution, whatever, there was no way they were going to let that thing go. There was too much money going on. Um, and in, in the book, you'll see almost by, well, int intentionally, uh, uh, almost by chapter, the amounts of money that the United States government was, was providing for climate change. And um, we, we go into the beginning of the uh, uh, Joe Biden term, and then we, we, we cut it off there. It was, it's basically a summary of what Biden did coming out of the box after we got inaugurated, and we'll be providing more information you know, in, in, future, in future writings. But with, without kind of uh, uh, getting too far into any more theory and philosophy of the writing, I wanted to get into the information in uh, the chapters and uh, have a chance to have you take a look at uh, my presentation of the information. And obviously, if you have any questions as we go along, please ask them. But I really wanted to take a sense also of, I, I have a, a good sense of pride about how this thing came together because it was dealing with copious information sources. I mean, we had everything from newspaper to magazine to TV to, you know, uh, to, to video to all kinds of stuff. So I, I think that if nothing else, I can guarantee you the, the research level on this thing is really good. You know, <laughs> one thing that I did want to share with you from the introduction um, and, and, you know, the presentation of the book in the in the introduction, uh, ask ask questions, um, make some points. Um, I'm talking about the money now, for example, 
you know, when Al Gore got into the act in his movie, An Inconvenient Truth became a hit. The money train took off. Send money now. There's no time to waste. But pictures of starving polar bears, with starving polar bears filled the news. Documentaries with melting glaciers ran on TV. Anywhere you could, you know, access YouTube, you find something. The, the, the one that's kind of um, strange but true, in my opinion, is that a 16-year-old girl named Greta was claimed to be climate change girl of the year. And the title was so presumptuous, it stuck. Okay, so there you go. But the um, uh, the, the 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 facts as I present them in the questions, and just to just to give you and you know the listeners uh, a sampling of them uh, in terms of questions to consider while reading the book. Why would Berkshire Hathaway spend over forty billion dollars to buy a hundred percent of a railroad when it already owned a piece of the company? Did Berkshire Hathaway know that a key pipeline project was about to be canceled? How did Democrat state attorney generals get the blueprints for attacks against the world's largest gas and oil companies? But by the way, one of the chapters is titled Audacious Conceit. And that's the you get the sense there that uh, I am saying that's audacious conceit. But anyway, um, how and why did Lori Davis spend millions to launch an inconvenient truth? I'm smiling on that one. When did the first warnings of melting icebergs hit the press? Why would school children and their teachers get blacklisted? Blacklisted. Um, and again, in, in, in the book, there's discussion about um, uh, different colleges and universities around the country where messages came out from whether it be the provost's office or the dean's office, or for that matter, the president's school's office, saying we will not tolerate anti-climate change discussion on this campus. Can you imagine? Shocking. Absolutely shocking. Then, why would the U.S. government spend more money fighting the climate change boogeyman than it spent on the space program? Okay. Um, and then, why did the 46th president in the United States, that's Joe Biden, uh, destroy the country's energy independence immediately after taking office in January 2021? Um, and the answer is audacious conceit overwhelming greed and the beliefs that the marks are truly stupid all right i may be i may be taking a little bit of poetic license there but you get the idea the the, the thing that i will point out to you also in in the book um there are uh two key points that are mentioned um a few times more than a few times but not there so often you get tired of reading it but climate is measured by well, the point that I'm making, I want to make here, and it's in the book, um, very, very often in the climate discussions, you hear people talk about, well, you know, we have more hurricanes than ever before, or, you know, the uh, the tornadoes in Tornado Alley are getting more intense. I don't know how you measure that, but anyway. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make here is that, that cl climate is measured by evaluating weather over a 30-year continuum. No one event standing alone is proof of any trend. And the uh, the other thing is that uh, in terms of, if you want to get to the bottom of the climate change argument, I would love to see an answer to this question. What is the Earth's ideal temperature? And when did it happen? Tell me that. Nobody has an answer to that, by the way. Nobody. It's insane. Anyhow, um, uh, you'll also see me use the term greeny in the book, and that's play on words. Uh, it's, it's a play on what happened when Al Gore first went into Congress in 76, uh, I think it was. Um, he was a group of young men or young, young Congress people. I think there, I don't know whether there were any women in that group at that time, but um, they, they were. Um, um, called the Atari Democrats, the Atari video game, okay? And it was a young group that was, that was uh, uh, and it, it, the, the greeny thing was actually a compliment because what, what, the, uh, what the nickname went toward was this group of new young Congress people who were talking about uh, uh, more government investment in technology and getting to 
you know, the next steps of how that technology would be able to benefit the country and, and that kind of thing. But anyhow, the, the term greeny stuck and I used it. It was a very easy way to explain one group versus the other. Um, but yeah, the question, what is the Earth's ideal temperature? And when did it happen? Uh, I've asked that. I've talked to scientists. What is the ideal temperature? They don't, they don't have an answer. So, um, um, but I wanted, I wanted to paint the, the groups of the subject by, by chapter for you so you would have a pretty good idea on how we were developing the timeline for the book. Um, uh, the other thing that I was looking to accomplish in, in the writing of the book was to have a powerful opener, to have a, a first chapter that, first chapter and actually first paragraph uh, that grabs somebody. And, um, uh, and that's how it starts. With your approval, I'm going to read a little bit from the first chapter, if that's okay. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the, next, the next few steps are going to be uh, kind of, they're going to be a lot of fun. And I had, I had fun preparing for this uh, conversation podcast with you also, but um, I couldn't resist the title for chapter one, which is appropriately the all-nighter. And I'm just going to read a little bit from it to kind of give you the sense of, of the um, presentation of information, I guess, is the best way to put it. But it starts like this. The chapter is chapter one, the all-nighter. March the 10th, 2014, 30 Democrat senators calling themselves the Senate Climate Action Task Force stayed up all night in a command performance on the Senate floor. They had set up a Twitter hashtag, Up for Climate. This group devoted 13 hours to talking about climate change. Nobody announced the bill. Nobody suggested any legislation. And nobody proposed <clears throat> taking any specific action on climate change in their communities at home. They did make sure, that's why I'm, now I'm smiling. They did make sure their names were recorded as being here. This was a fundraiser for themselves. $100 million was at stake. Um, that caught my attention too. You know, I was like, <laughs> but anyway, uh, five senators had, uh, they call them the winners when their straws were pulled out of the, the lineup hat, uh, were, were picked to work the dead of night shifts. The other senators who were expected to participate included, at the time, uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, Ed Markey, Dick Durbin, Chuck Schumer, Elizabeth Warren, Patty Murray, and I go through the, the list. Um, and, you know, some of these people are still serving in the Senate. Um, some have retired and so on, but Amy Klobuchar was there, Kirsten Gillibrand was there, Chris Coons, and Bernie, or uh, Bernard Bernie Sanders. Um, and these names will show up again in the book as we talk about everything from, you know, climate legislation to um, one of the, well, the, the candidate casino is actually one of my favorite chapters, and that's chapter 16. I have another reason for making that one of my favorites, but I'll get into that in a second. Um, but back to, back to the, the, the chapter read. Politicians must secure money for their campaigns, and this was an opportunity to tell a billionaire exactly what he wanted to hear. Majority Leader Harry Reid opened the 13-hour proceedings at 6.30 Monday evening talking about the weather. Drought in the heartland, tornadoes and tornado alleys, wildfires in California, Colorado and Oregon, low water in the Mississippi, low temperatures in Florida and Georgia when it was 65 degrees in Alaska. We have the capability and responsibility to act, but we must do so before it's too late. This is a question of our own survival. And here's where this gets a little interesting. Richard Blumenthal talked about how climate change might impact our national security. Maria Cantwell, Cardin, and Elizabeth Warren passionately claimed that climate change would affect natural habitats in the home states. But, and then I had to include this one Republican, Senator James Inhofe from Oklahoma, made an appearance to contradict the Democrats all night long. That's going to be fun. He basically disputed everything the Democrats had said. Imhoff called global warming a hoax and often pointed out cold snaps as confirmation. They'll have an audience of themselves, and I hope that they enjoy it. The, the other piece of this continues with the talkathon sounded like a revival meeting. The words we believe preceded many statements. We believe in wind. We believe in solar. We believe in renewable energy. 
Chris Coons said climate change for him was a faith issue. <laughs> and Amy Kilbertar said, we believe in science. The we believe in science line was perfectly tied to bashing conservatives. If the Democrats are believers, Republicans are deniers. Republicans were called deniers 28 times that night. Harry Reid said, despite overwhelming scientific evidence and overwhelming public opinion, climate change deniers still exist. He added that it was time to stop acting as if those who ignore climate change have a valid point of view. They don't, he said. And then chapter one continues, but you can see what I was attempting to do was get the reader into the book right away. And the, um, um, the pieces in, 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 the, in, in the writing that I just read, uh, the thing about the revival meeting, um, that, that there are like four or five different sources for this one chapter, okay? And the bibliography itself, uh, depending on the edit of the, ver of the volume number, uh, is over 44 pages. There's 44 pages, more than 40 pages. So there's a lot of effort on my part specifically to be sure to you know, present the information to the reader while at the same time giving credit where credit was due, who said it and when they said it. You know? um, but uh, 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 the, the whole step-by-step -step on this book, fortunately, and I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm happy I did it this way, it's, it, it leads to, you know, one page leads to another. I have um, quoted directly from the congressional record uh, Mitch McConnell's response to the uh, the all nighter, um, and uh, you know it was it was funny because there were quite a few barbs thrown in there. But then this it, congressional record, you know, talk is cheap. We know this is uh, uh, Mitch McConnell. Talk is cheap. We know that, and America's middle class is tired of all the talk. They want action. Let's provide it on jobs, Mr. President. I yield the floor now. Here is when I begin to get into the, the, the flavor of the proceedings, because one reason the Democrats weren't discussing any actual legislation was that, as McConnell had said, they didn't have enough votes to get anything passed. Sheldon Whitehouse admitted that attempting to pass climate change legislation in the current Senate would be premature. Plus, many Democrat senators, including Mark Begich, Kay Hagan, and Mary Landrieu and Mark Pryor were up for re-election in states where President Obama's policies were extremely unpopular. None of those four were participants in the all-night session. Um, then I go on with Al Gore's mark on the proceedings was undeniable. His catastrophic predictions made in 2006 meant credence to every speaker's claim of pending climate change doom unless the deniers could be silenced or converted. This is... Um, an amazing statement on you know in the very beginning of the book in chapter one. But when I talk about the fact that Gore was talking, you know, the deniers could be silenced or converted. Oh boy, holy mackerel. Does that repeat itself as we go through this book? But anyhow, that's why the Democrats believe that focusing on the issue could help them. The one donor who got all of their focus was energy billionaire Tom Steyer. Um he uh was recognized by the Democrats as a deep pocket guy who made his money in energy, green and, and fossil fuel, and was um, uh, passionate about working with Democrats to get elected. He actually, uh, well, Steyer had already committed 50 of the $100 million on the table. Steyer had already committed 50 million to help Democrats in the 2014 congressional elections and placed 50 million more. No one in attendance forgot that he spent $8 million to get Terry McAuliffe elected governor of Virginia just six months earlier. So, um, but yeah, I, I asked the question, how did we get to a point where 30 Democrat senators, all educated adults, all elected officials representing nearly 203 million constituents out of a total U.S. population of over 320 million people at the time, spent an entire evening passionately spewing, in most cases, unproven myths about a potentially planet-ending disaster. Were they so blinded by the money? They knew if they could lay groundwork for future legislation, the money train would keep running. But here's what I say. To pull off, 
To pull off a scam this big requires two things. One, a gullible culture, and two, a recognized and charismatic spokesman or spokeswoman. Now we continue following that line. When it came to climate change, Al Gore had more effect on the gullible culture than anyone in history. He had cemented himself as the movement's leader, the head spokesman, the guru. He was in that position for more than eight years before the Democrat senators 2014 all matter. Uh, and, and again, th these are facts. I'm not making any of this stuff up. And I think that's one thing that uh, I know we've talked about it already, but I wanted to you know, reemphasize this is actually happening. And, you know, um, um, Gore was a um, very charismatic uh, speaker. He, he, he basically held the first House committee uh, meetings on climate change, and he co-sponsored hearings on toxic waste. Um, his regular presentations about the environment and climate change put in the spotlight, but um, I... I uh, uh, I, I have not seen, I had, I had not seen and have not seen Gore speak in person. Um, I have, I have uh, friends and relatives who have actually been to different uh, presentations, uh, meetings, what have you around the country um, where Gore was, was speaking about an inconvenient truth. And I'm going to get to that in a minute, but he's, he's tall, good looking guy, good shape. And he could literally, according to my brother, who was one of the people who heard him speak, he said, this guy could take the audience in his hand and just move him from one side of the room to the other and back. And, you know, that's that's a very um, powerful and potent uh, speaker. You know, he's, 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 he got his uh, political um, uh, positions for a reason. One of them is that he spoke well, could hold the audience, and um, people I guess, basically liked them. But the, the 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 strength of where we're going with this is that Gore went from, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the Atari Democrats, and he was uh, House of Representatives three times in 78, 80, and 82. His regular presentations about the environment and climate change put him in the spotlight. He was known as one of the Atari Democrats, and... Um, uh, he was part of the group that became the Democrats Greens. They were convinced that those issues would be key to future Democrat Party victories. Basically, um, came into the Senate with a uh, with a track record on the climate, and he he had written editorials and everything. But the point I wanted to make was that he. As still Senator Gore in uh, uh, 1992, prior to the election when he and Bill Clinton won you know, uh, president, vice president uh, titles. But anyhow, in, in Rio in 1992, the Rio Earth Summit was held from June 4 to 14 in 92. It was formerly known as the UN Conference on the Environment and Development, but it resulted in the Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, it was, it was interesting because John Denver actually served as a master of ceremonies. I saw, I saw the video of this Rio summit. Um, and John Denver, uh, <laughs> Rocky Mountain High was playing as he took the podium. And then he introduced Al Gore to the tune of Rocky Mountain High behind him. And in and, and Gore's speech, this is really the first time, that, this is 1992, that Gore got the type of um, uh, power in his message out to the general world, world's, uh, uh, you know, elected officials and things. But um, yeah, he, well, the thunderous applause, the world's parliamentary leaders knew that they were about to hear from a man who made his theme of gathering his life's work. Um, they basically applauded and applauded harder because as I say here, they knew money was coming, okay? So here we go. Um, but to, but to, to continue in the Gore thing and how we got to where we are in, in, in this situation, um, Gore was a big climate, uh, climate guy. The Kyoto Climate Change Conference was uh, the 
you know, formal adoption of the Kyoto Protocol. Gore was at that time, um, it was December now, December of 97 when Kyoto went down. Um, he basically got shot down before going to Kyoto uh, in the Bird Hegel Amendment, which basically said the United States will not be part and parcel to any type of a treaty where, uh, summarizing this, where countries could have access to the United States Treasury. And that was set up in such a way to enforce penalties for non-compliance to Kyoto Protocol, uh, you know, points, pieces of legislation. But on his way back from Kyoto, he was on a plane on Air Force Two uh, with an empty pit in his stomach because he, 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 he had done a great job convincing the world's parliamentarians that this protocol was crucial to saving the planet and, you know, all that. Um, but he didn't have a deal with his own country. So Gore symbolically signed the Kyoto Protocol. as well. And I'm giving you 1997. Um, and of course, the United States never ratified the treaty and things went on from there. The, um, uh, the point I'm trying to make though, is that when he wound up going through the rest of his uh, tenure as vice president into the presidential election, he got into a, uh, a situation where well, to put it bluntly, the guy needed a win. He had he had many um, well-publicized efforts and events, um, but he did not get that sequence of victories that um, politicians and you know politicians with ego most have a good ego, and Al certainly does. But um, he needed a win. So when he when he lost the presidential race to Bush, he. He basically found himself in a situation where um, um, he had a slideshow, which became the movie, and he had been showing it to friends. And then all of a sudden, the well, the chapter "The Sky Is Falling" talks about what happened with uh, Tim Worth and James Hansen. Tim Worth was a um, was from Colorado senator, and he was. Uh, Let's say he needed he needed to have some type of um, solidification endorsement, if you will, of his presentation of climate and the stresses. And uh, uh, Worth was able to get a hold of James Hansen. Now I'm starting to give you some names that have become more and more popular, more and more apparent in the um, in the climate timeline, if you will, but. Um, Hansen basically said in the hearing, global warming has reached a level such we can ascribe to a high degree of confidence that uh, the world's in trouble and it's happening now. The, the, um, the, the thing about Hansen and Worth was kind of interesting because uh, uh, Worth was also very you know, good public communication, he, uh, according to the story, anyhow, he, Washington, D.C., in the summer can be extremely hot and humid. So he made sure that he opened up the windows to the, to the uh, hearing room, to, to, to the hearing room, to the meeting room, and had the air conditioner turned off. So all the guys that are sitting there listening to the scientists explaining how hot it is were sitting there with sweat pouring off of their body. But, um, you know, anybody who spoke about science and its uncertainties was categorized as a denier. Deniers are labeled as little illegitimate evil people, should be banned and have their work defunded. Anyhow, um, moving along, the part about chapter three, where I used to be the next president of the United States, uh, we talked about it a little bit, but to, to the point of um, where did inconvenient truth come from, um, Gore had a slideshow that he put together to show his friends. And then he started making impromptu presentations in different places in the country and all that kind of, uh, he, now he was no longer vice president, he was Al Gore's citizen. And um, he, uh, he made a good presentation. One of the panelists at this meeting that he was at in New York was uh, producer Lori David and uh, Gore began by greeting everyone with his famous introductory line, 
Hello, I am Al Gore. I used to be the next president of the United States. Anyhow, um, he said, I've been trying to tell the story for a long time. I feel as if I failed to get the message across. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Basically, Laurie David said his presentation was the most powerful and clear presentation of global warming I'd ever seen, and it became my mission to get everyone I knew to see it, too. Now, in the book, I talk about how the title of the movie became, you know, came about, and um, the thing that the thing that got really almost amazing was a summary of what happened with an inconvenient truth. Inconvenient truth opened in New York City and Los Angeles on May the 24, 2006. Two years after Gorov showed his slide presentation, Lori Davis said, "This is going to be a movie," and and they made huh, they made a movie. The film was distributed. But Paramount had a $1.5 million budget. It grossed $49.8 million. And that's, these are $2,006. I don't know what that is in 2023. They haven't done the math on it anyway. But it's a pretty good hit. Um, it won two Academy Awards, Best Documentary and Best Original Song. It also won top awards in 29 or 39 other national and international uh, presentations. It became the highest grossing documentary film in the United States. It was basically a film of a slideshow, okay? But um, then I go on to talk about how, how that how that inconvenient truth spun into um, um, a lot of events about, involving Al Gore. Not least, of course, was the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and uh, yeah, well, the... The point I want to make here is that Al, Al Gore was nominated by two Norwegian parliamentarians for the Peace Prize, who also nominated an Intuit activist and uh, Poland's Irene Sendler, a 96-year-old woman who saved more than 25 Jewish children from the Holocaust in World War II, was among the nominees. The head of the International Peace Research Institute in Oslo put Gore at the top of his list of picks. And basically, a movie about a slideshow had taken over the country's psyche. Um, but moving right along here, what I wanted to um, continue and, and emphasize was that the, the timeline now starts to build on itself. Because once we go from um, you know, Al Gore and, and his activities, the, uh, the climate apocalypses that, that didn't happen um, it's something I wanted to point out in, in that this is not, this is, we're not at some new point in history. Um, people have been screaming about the climate, uh, creating apocalypses for over a hundred years. One of my favorites is, is this one. And it, well, I'm not going to tell you what date it is until I finish real fast. The Arctic Ocean is warming up, icebergs are growing scarcer, and in some places, the seals are finding the water too hot, according to a report from the Commerce Department. Reports from fishermen, seal hunters, and explorers all point to a radical change in climate conditions and hitherto unheard of temperatures in the Arctic zone. Exploration expeditions report scarcely any ice has been met for, well, and then they give you 81 degrees and so on. The very few cells and few whitefish are found in the eastern Arctic. Vast shoals of herrings and smelts which never ventured so far north are being encountered in the old fishing grounds. Within a few years, within a few years, it's predicted that due to the ice melt, the sea will rise and make most coast cities uninhabitable. That was the Associated Press, November the 2nd, 1922, and published in the Washington Post. So we are actually now 101 years since that report, and I have quite a few of them in, in the book also. One thing that's kind of interesting is that um, in this whole climate uh, phenomenon, uh, the 1970s somehow gets conveniently omitted when the, well, for example, the cover of Newsweek, Newsweek had a cover of a frozen planet Earth saying the coming ice age. And people, I was, I was, I was uh, a young father back then, and I still remember going out and spending money for extra insulation and getting, you know, better, better doors, better windows, all that, because I was not about to let my wife and baby freeze, you know. 
um, corning uh, with five, corning fiberglass, the pink panther as a, as a logo. But corning did more business in uh, 1978 than it did in the prior five years combined. Okay, so it was it was a, a fascinating phenomenon, but it also continued on with the theme of there, there's money here. I, I wanted to. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking that what we should probably talk about a little bit here is with chapter five, the earth revolves around the sun. Um, because that chapter is where we talk about, um, uh, well, the, the, the little byline underneath the title, the earth revolves around the sun is truth is like poetry. Most people hate poetry. So as a result, you've got a lot of information flying around out here and the, um, uh, the, the, the point I'm looking, I was looking to emphasize here was that Michael Mann, who was a uh, professor and um, uh, well, he, he and his, part, his partners authored a research paper that attempted to reconstruct global temperatures for the past thousand years. The paper's title was Northern Hemisphere Temp Temperatures and Continues On. But um, where this led from October to the end of the year in 1998 was the infamous, I guess I should say, hockey stick. And the hockey stick graph has a, well, basically the graph looks like a hockey stick laying on the ice. The shaft is on the ice and the blade pointing upward. It said temperatures from 1000 AD to 1900 AD were constantly and consistently in a close range. But then when plotted on a chart, the shaft suddenly goes up. Now, Gore, in the Community Truth, was riding the scissor lift, showing this very grim, you know, grim situation where these are the temperatures for a thousand years. Now, all of a sudden, everything's going up. And I think he actually had a problem with the lift and they had to stop recording so somebody could go up there and get them down. But nevertheless, the hockey stick hit and we suddenly had a, a phenomenon in our hands where you had scientific proof of temperature readings and how the temperatures scale together. What didn't happen was that, in, well, scientists have a responsibility, in my opinion, and in the scientific community's opinion, to allow for peer review. So if you come up with a new um, theory or a new theorem or you know, a new concept or whatever, you give fellow scientists the information you use to allow them to duplicate the experiment. And if they come up with the same answer, well, guess what? You got a hero here. Somebody hit something. Man, Michael Mann never let the information never shared his information. He never let the information out, never shared his information. So as a result, even to this day, he has never shared that information. But when challenged, he wound up suing people. So, um, and so actually some of the people you've, you've spoken with were uh, in, involved in a, uh, a group that got attacked by man. And the thing that was so startling to me was that I mean, the hockey stick became the symbol for the global warming. And, you know, you're talking about a, um, uh, an increase in money. Donations were popping up. Uh, U.S. government's funding for climate change in, in fiscal year 2008 was $6.3 billion, And it just kept going up. So if you were in the business, you were loving the cash flow, you were ready to keep on working to keep the money coming. Then, as if in a parallel universe... Somebody hacks some emails and all hell broke loose. And that's when you get into climate data. Um, the, um, uh, the, the story on Michael Mann continues. He, he actually uh, he tried to defend himself in court. He never allowed access to any of the information and he sued people that were coming after him, you know, um, which is very unfortunate. But uh, as, as of right now, he is a uh, director of the science department at the University of Pennsylvania. I get the alumni magazine and I saw that and I said, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't say anything at this point. I did want to point something out and, and obviously you can tell I'm enjoying talking about this. 
But um, in chapter um, in, in chapter sixteen, it's the Canada Casino. But, but chapter thirteen is titled the Cultural Laws. And what I was able to find was uh, what okay, Attorney General William Barr at Hillsdale College made a Constitution Day uh, presentation, and I have some excerpts from his speech. Um, and it talks about prosecution. And as, as we discussed, you know, in the book, I talk about the law and the lawyers and how they're coming after uh, people, how, you know, um, you had a cabal of lawyers who figured they could literally extort money from the oil companies. But here's, here's uh, uh, Attorney General Barr. Um, There's always a temptation to will a prosecution into existence, even when the facts, the law, or the fair-handed administration of justice do not support bringing charges. The power to, as he called it, strike its citizens with all the force of government itself must be carefully calibrated and closely supervised. Left unchecked, it has the potential to inflict far more harm than it prevents. Government power, completely divorced from politics, is tyranny. And when I read that, I kind of, I, you know, I kind of stopped for a second. I said, you know, that, that applies to a lot of stuff even going on today. So, the the um, the consistency of the theme, the consistency of how as a you know as a as a public we get exposed to a lot of information. Some of it is right on. Some of it is conjecture that's being presented as fact. And the the responsibility of the presentation of the information, I think, gets gets lost in the in the argument. You know. Um, what I, what I attempted to do in the book was be agnostic relative to Republican and Democrat. I wanted this to be right down the middle or as far down the middle as I could and let the chips fall as they may. But I'm going to, I know, I know we're close on the time. So I'm, I'm going to jump intentionally to the last page of the last chapter and, um, uh, the last sentence goes like this. The climate change story is like the emperor's new clothes by Hans Christian Andersen, which is a children's story about a lie that became scam. Best wishes. And that's what I got for it. I've got a lot more if you want, but I know we're running out of time. Um, what do you think? Uh, wonderful. I just wanted to ask, uh, I have the book on Kindle. I think it's 580 pages. It's uh, very, very detailed. How long did it take to put this all together? How many hours did you put into it? Oh, a lot. I, I really, I want to say it took a, it took a couple of years to actually do the writing. Uh, I wasn't doing it 24 seven, obviously, but um, um, what I found fascinating was going from information source to information source, which I had cataloged uh, by, you know, by, by month and year type of thing or month, day and year in some cases. So it, it took a while. There's a, there's a couple of years of, of, of writing effort here and, so a few more years of research on top of it. It's it's been a fabulous but really interesting journey, you know. Now I didn't catch your own timeline. Were you following a lot of this stuff in real time back in the '90s and stuff, or did you come to it uh, later? Well, I came in. I came into the detail later. Um, I, I was curious. Uh, the answer to the 1990s. I, I was following it, but not as not in as much depth. And um, Gore became. Uh, kind of a lightning rod, and that lightning rod was really easy to follow because he was getting regular press and, and making a lot of presentations that that seemed kind of um, um, pushing the outside of the envelope, you know. So that's what caught my attention. It was in a lot of ways shocking that so much information was being stuck into uh, people's bonnets, so to speak, um, and guarantees of gloom and doom were you know, nothing other than a verbal send money type of a thing. So I, I think that's really where it's at. Um, but we're also, like I mentioned earlier, um, we're in a situation and in a spot in a position where this climate scam with the picture of the hang on the cover with the bird in his mouth is probably going to become, you, you're probably looking at sometime here in a bit with uh, volume two. And I think this one will be titled Cue the Bears. It's, Referencing Judith Curry and some of the work that she's been doing up there. I know you had her on, on the podcast. So I think that's um, a good choice, by the way. She's 
she, she's quite a person. She's like, I, I have not met her personally. But, um, I respect her work a lot. She's done a lot of good things, you know, and it's, uh, I think it's wonderful for us as our, um, as a society, you have people out there that are looking into both sides of the situation. So that's, uh, that's kind of where it's at. You know? Okay. All right. Very good. Thank you for taking the time. And let's see, Climate Scam, the book came out on Kindle, it looks like in just July of 2023. And then Correct. you are starting work already on the next one? Or are you thinking about the next version already? We're, we're, in, we're, we're into, I've, I've accumulated a lot of information using the same kind of um, uh, MO that I used for, for the first one. Um, and we're, we're now literally in a situation where we're editing the information, getting it ready into outline form, and then comes the comes the next book. But um, yeah, I'm really excited about the situation. I'm happy to be in a position where I can be presenting the information that we have, you know? All right. And you are active on Twitter, right? And the Climate Scam yeah. account on Twitter. Correct. A lot, of, a lot of good stuff out there. All right. I think we're done for now, but thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I hope to have you on again. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to the next invitation for sure.